First Samuel, chapter eight. First Samuel is a book kind of tells three back-to-back stories, focuses on three individuals. And so where we are in chapter 8, we've just kind of closed book 1, Samuel the prophet. This morning we begin book 2 on Saul, Israel's first king. Uh, and then about halfway through the book, we'll get into book 3, which is the rule of David. Um, as we pick up here in chapter 8... Uh, it's important to notice that we've basically wound forward in time quite a ways. Uh, in fact, there's really three stops along Samuel's life before Saul, beginning with, uh, with Samuel's childhood and miraculous birth, and then, uh, and then it moves forward to Samuel's great victory over the Philistines when he unites all of Israel, and now it moves forward, as it says in verse 1, when Samuel became old. And so he's, he's now much more elderly. He's been judging Israel for a long time. And on the way, he made, it says here, his sons judges over Israel. Now, we have seen a pattern with past judges doing that, but none of those examples are good. Uh, almost every place where a judge has installed his, um, his children, it's always been a bad idea. Uh, in fact, the last judge is Eli, who's also the high priest, uh, and his sons were kind of a mess. Uh, we're told here that the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Uh, now, it mentions that they were judging in Beersheba, and the reason is because that coincides with Samuel's judgment. And so for the most part, Samuel here is ruling over on rotation, as we saw in the last chapter, a couple of major cities. And so he stations his sons at a distance to the territory um, he rarely gets out to. However, verse 3, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now that's really striking in the story. Because remember, it's Samuel who carried the prophetic word, the judgment to Eli, because his sons were in positions of power and used those positions to fleece the people of Israel. And so it's striking here because Samuel is raised in this household, testifies to this reality, and to some degree, even though he's raised by Eli, who was clearly a poor parent, makes it out of that and becomes a responsible, faithful adult, but he still apparently has learned some bad practices from Eli, specifically that he continues to leave his sons in power despite the fact that they are not uh, morally up to the job. And so, so here we have an issue. Samuel's getting old What's going to happen after he's gone? And we're not the only ones thinking about it. So is Israel, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so they come and they say, You've been a great judge, 
your kids aren't going to do the job. What we'd like is a monarchy. What we'd like is a king like the other nations have. Okay. Now, <clears throat> notice Samuel doesn't react to this very well. Verse 6, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And so, if you have an older translation, it says this was evil to Samuel. But this, this word here is a broad word. It means tragedy, it means displeasure, it means evil. Most likely it's just telling us that he doesn't like the idea. We're not told why. It would make sense if he feels like it's a judgment on himself. In fact, we'll see in just a minute that he clearly feels that way. It may be a reminder of the disappointment of his sons, or he could also recognize the significance of what Israel is asking for. But either way, he takes it before God and he prays and asks God, what to do. Verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so he says, go ahead and do what they ask you to, and don't feel bad about it, because he, he basically says, don't take this personally. They're not rejecting you, Samuel, and then it kind of drops the bomb. They're rejecting me. And so God looks at this request negatively as being something inappropriate. And to be really frank, that's surprising. It's surprising because all the way back in Deuteronomy, remember that Deuteronomy uh, is written before Israel even enters into the promised land, before they've taken any territory. All the way back then, Moses lays out in Deuteronomy 17 the guidelines for how kings are supposed to behave. They're supposed to take the Book of the Covenant and write themselves in their own hand a copy of it. They're to read it and meditate it on it daily. They're to rule justly. They're not to multiply money. They're not to multiply wives. And they're not to multiply horses. It's all laid out right there. But if you go even further back, remember that Abraham is specifically told by God, your descendants, some of them will be kings. In fact, in Genesis 49, it speaks uh, especially of the tribe of Judah ruling and reigning in an individual who will reign until Shiloh comes, this mysterious pointer that points forward to the Messiah. Shiloh literally means him whose right it is. So in other words, uh, the leadership that's supposed to come out of Judah, the king, is going to be an interim king until the real king arrives. As you may be familiar... About the same time that Samuel is born, God is working in another place in the book of Ruth. And in Ruth, we discover that God is moving to unite this Moabite woman, Ruth, with this Jewish bachelor, Boaz, and through doing so, continues the genealogy, the Judean genealogy, the one that we've been tracing since the book of Genesis. Uh, in fact, the very end of the book ends with a genealogy not of Ruth or of Boaz, but of King David, because Ruth is his great-great-great-grandmother. So clearly, the book of Ruth is telling us about God's beginning to carry out a plan to bring a king. And his, here Israel comes and asks, and God's upset. He says, this is rejection. This is inappropriate. Now, he still gives them what they want, but before we look at that, let's ask, what's the problem here? I think the best way to understand it is to look at the verbiage that Israel uses in their request. 
Notice what they say in verse 5. Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your way. Both facts. Now appoint for us a king, no problem there, to judge us like all the nations. Or literally like the other nations. Okay? They don't just want a king. They want a king like they have. Okay? That's where the problem is. They want a king like the nations have. And that goes against the grain of exactly what Israel is. How does God respond? They've rejected me because I am their king. We want a king to fight for us. But it's God who has fought the battles of Israel. It's not that they want the wrong thing because God is clearly moving towards a monarchy. It's that they want the right thing for the wrong reasons. And what's really scary here is as we see consistently with God... He gives them what they ask for. You know, we have that saying, be careful what you wish for. But it's also true that we should be careful what we ask for. And side note, Saul, who we'll see is not a very good king, his name literally means the one you asked for. They get what they ask for. Okay? They want a king like the other nations. Saul is a king like the other nations. David, however, how is he identified by God? As a man after my own heart. The king as he was destined to be, as he was planned to be, as he was designed to be. But in their impatience and in their improper motivation, they say, give us this type of a king, and God answers. Now, that should make you have a little bit of trepidation because it really is a pattern. It's not just something that happens here. When Israel is wandering in the wilderness and complaining about constantly eating this bland manna, They say, we'd long for some meat. God, give us some meat. And God goes, okay. But the meat comes with judgment. We see this again um, quite a few times in Scripture, but just just to point at another one. um, Let's see if I can actually think of one. I had one before I got up here. Balaam. You remember Balaam? Balaam. Balaam is approached by Balak, the king of Moab, and he says, I've got a problem. Israel's out there in the wilderness, really close to our territory, and they look like a swarm. It's a huge group of people. It's a terrible threat. We want you, in the name of God, to curse them. And Balaam goes, well, I don't really take requests, but I'll pray and see if God will let me. And God clearly and distinctly says no. And so Balaam comes back and he says, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I can only say the things that God has given me to say. And he's told me that I am not allowed to curse Israel. And Balak goes, well, that's really too bad because we were going to pay you handsomely. And he goes, let me try again. And so he goes back and he asks again. And God this time says what? He says, go ahead. But what what do we find? Balaam on the way to deliver this message, to do what first God told him not to and now has given him permission to do, encounters an angel standing in the road with a flaming sword to take his life and it's only because of the perception of the donkey that he's riding on that his life is spared. We have to recognize here uh, that God uh, will sometimes give us what we want if we demand it. And that's not always a good thing. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, let your will be done, not let my will be done. In fact, we're to uh, coat our entire lives in this deferment to God's will, recognizing that God knows better 
than we do. And so Israel makes a request, and God's going to give it to them. And so, first, notice verse 8. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. In other words, he says the history of Israel has been one of rejection. Continuously taking the good that I'm doing and asking for something else turning to some other savior, directing their energies to some other God. And then he says in verse 9, Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. And so he says, go ahead and heed them, but first I want you to lay out the consequences beforehand. Okay, God lovingly warns them of what this is going to look like. And see, that's one of the problems with the requests that we often make in prayer of God is that we only see one little piece and we neglect the other things. This is something I've learned just being a church planter. This is the fifth building that we've been in since we started eight years ago. And whenever you're looking at a new space, what's visible are the pros. You're like, oh, this is so much better because it has this, whereas right now we don't, because it no longer has this, whereas we're stuck with this right now. You never know the cons till you live the cons. You can't see them. And so God graciously says, before we heed their request, lay out what it's going to look like. And this is what he says, verse um, 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of 50 and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the 10th of your grain and of your vineyard and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the 10th of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. He says, you want a king to deliver you, but it's going to be a king that enslaves you. Okay. He's basically saying, when government is put in place, when you install a monarchy, it comes with a cost. The king is going to take taxes. The king is going to take uh, and build an army. The king is going to constrict your daughters and your sons to work for him. He's going to take the best of the land and he's going to give it away freely to the people he likes. It's all stuff that sounds like modern politics, does it not? He just says, this is where you're going. And then he says, you will feel oppression in this and you will cry out to me, but I won't listen to you. Why? Because the only thing God would have to say at that point is, I told you so. That's the whole point of this warning. Now, as I mentioned, God has plans for a monarchy, and to be frank, the place where we really see the worst of this is not in Saul's rule. It's not in David's rule. It's in Solomon's rule. So despite the fact that Solomon makes Israel wealthy as well, he also builds extensively across Israel to the degree when his replacement comes in. 
the people send a little coalition to his son and they basically say, your dad has worked us to the bone and he's taxed us so heavily. You want to be a king we'll love forever? Just ease off a little bit. And foolishly, foolishly, he listens to his young friends who say, no, you've got to put your foot down. You show him that you'll demand more than your father and he gets moving in the wrong direction. But it's really under Solomon where we really start to see these things play out. But nonetheless here, Notice how they respond, verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. We really can't imagine a statement that's farther away from thy will be done, right? They, they don't even say, what do you think about us having a king? They don't just ask here, they're given the option, they go, no, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have a king that rules over us. Verse 20, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Now, there's another thing I want you to notice here because it becomes significant. We get a really good illustration of how a prophet works. Obviously, God is not ignorant to the thoughts and hearts of the people of Israel. But have you noticed the back and forth here? Samuel is acting in a mediatorial way between God and the people, conveying the information both ways. This will be significant because when there is a monarchy, that's not going to change. And so Samuel becomes not just the last judge, but the first of the prophets to the monarchy. And we'll see that he continues to have this go-between reality. Kings are not left up to their own ability, but the prophets serve a purpose in speaking into the monarchy on behalf of God. So verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And so he says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'll call you again when it's time. Notice what Samuel doesn't do. He doesn't go, who wants the job? Right? In fact, he doesn't even say, I'd like to nominate so-and-so. He recognizes that if this is going to be a king, even for the wrong reasons, it's still going to have to fill the Deuteronomic requirements, of which two we haven't mentioned yet. One, can't be a foreigner. Has to be Jew by birth. Two, has to be God's chosen. Okay? So this may not be God's best they get in Saul, but God is still going to have to pick him. And so in other words... They just wait. Chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, and a man of wealth. Now pause. Here we're given an introduction to what's going to be Saul in a second, but it's given exactly the same as we were introduced to Hannah's husband, Elkanah, in chapter 1. It's really an interesting study, I might refer to it a few more times tonight, I probably won't, to compare the beginning of Saul to the beginning of Samuel. Even their names are similar, uh, not just in Saul and Samuel, not just in English, but their meanings. Remember what, what Hannah said about Samuel? God has heard my prayer. And what does Saul's name mean? What you asked for, okay? They're, uh, they're syntactically similar. Uh, on top of that, both of them are given their background to four generations. Uh, and there's a few other parallels, but I'm going to leave them to you as homework, things to think through. But clearly, the first start place where we start to see things are wrong with Saul is in this intentional comparison to Samuel. 
Okay, so watch for that as we read along. But here we're introduced, and I want you to notice that his father, Kish, it says, is a Benjamite and a man of wealth. Okay, the word there for man of wealth means a man of great power. He's a mover and a shaker. Uh, It's more than just the fact that he's wealthy, although it's clearly that. It may even mean that he's a war hero, okay? Uh, that he has a reputation, that he's a known player in the history of Israel. Verse 2, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, and then it adds, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Okay, and so he comes from a background of a military war hero. He's one of the best-looking people in Israel, and he's also literally, and this is what it says in the Hebrew, this might even be where we get the phrase, head and shoulders above the rest, okay? That's what it means, what it says here when he's tall, is that he was a whole head higher than the average Jewish male, okay? And so he is literally tall, dark, and handsome. But let me point something out to you. Think if you can, close your eyes, and picture Abraham. Picture Isaiah. Picture Jesus. Now, you've probably seen, you know, the the wood carvings of Gustave Doré or the the paintings of Rembrandt, or you've seen that picture on your grandmother's wall of Jesus. But if you try and do the same thing but do it with biblically given descriptions, you've got nothing. It is very rare that the Bible tells us what someone looks like, okay? All we know about David is that he was ruddy, which we're not even sure what that means. It may mean that he was a redhead. It may mean that he was relatively uh, sun-scorched, okay? Uh, That he just, I mean, he was a shepherd. He lived outside. He looks like he lived outside, okay? Uh, But what's significant here is what's missing. The only description we're given of Saul is what? External. Now, it's going to be tremendously satisfying to Israel. In fact, we have one story from around the area of the appointing of a king for another nation. Interestingly enough, a king is chosen and he sits on the throne, but because his feet don't reach the floor and his head doesn't cover up the back of the throne, he's rejected as, as a king because he's not tall enough. Okay. Now, let's be honest, even in American politics, which we claim is so much better because it's democratic, what are we often drawn to? to? Externals. Impressive abilities to speak. Uh, You know, uh, I mean, look at Reagan's background. He was an actor. That's what he was known for. He was on the stage and screen already, and so it was natural to put him in the White House, okay? Our current president was a reality TV star, right? And somebody who we had only seen before that because of cameos in movies when they featured his hotel, like in Home Alone. Um, We can easily get caught up into this, but they asked like a king like the other nations, and so they get one that qualifies, that bears all the marks, okay? He comes from a solid, wealthy family. Whereas, where does David come from? Just... Just a little poor house, a bunch of shepherds from Bethlehem, this tiny little town, right? It's a very different thing. In fact, remember the story of David. I know we're remembering forward, but remember forward with me. When God removes the rule from Saul and says, I'm going to replace you, and he speaks to Samuel and he says, I want you to go and anoint a new king for me, okay? He goes to David's house. David has seven brothers, 
And so he comes to his dad and he says, line up all your sons for me. And he comes to the oldest one and he looks at him and the guy, like Saul, is a looker. He's impressive. He's big. He's strong. And Saul, Samuel thinks to himself, that's it. This is the guy I'm supposed to anoint. And God corrects him and he says, don't look at appearances. Because God doesn't look at appearances. He looks at the heart. And so it goes all the way down the line. All seven of the brothers are rejected. And he's kind of confused at this point. And he goes, wait a minute. Do you have any other sons? And he goes, well, there's David, but he's nothing. He's out in the fields, but that's the one that God wants. That's the one that God is after. So Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. He's impressive. Uh, he comes from this background. Now we get the story of what happens. So verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. Now this is an abnormal place to start. One of the things we're going to see very clearly in this story is that God is doing something, okay? That these donkeys didn't just wander off. God has sovereignly away, arranged for these donkeys to go missing to get uh, Saul's attention. But I do want you to notice something here, okay? Uh, donkeys have a tendency to wander. That's not really that abnormal, Saul is going to have a very difficult time finding them. That may be a bit abnormal. In fact, it's interesting that our introduction to Saul and our introduction to David both have this shepherding idea. But the introduction to David is this stalwart, heroic, killed a lion and a bear to protect the sheep shepherd. And Saul is going to show himself to be incompetent and obtuse. And this is really important. Here's why. Because the number one image the Old Testament uses for kings is the image of the shepherd. And so our very first introduction to Saul here is not a good introduction. It reminds me of what Paul says about pastors in the New Testament. He says that people should only become elders in the church if they rule their household well. Because if someone doesn't rule their own household well, how could they possibly be a good authority in the church? Similarly, in the Old Testament, God wants people who not just are brilliant strategists at war, not just incredible builders or visionaries, he wants people who care for the flock, who will lay their life down for the flock. In fact, in John chapter 10, that's how Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am the good shepherd because the good shepherd lays his life down for the, for the sheep. He says, everyone else are thieves and hirelings, right? A hireling, when it gets the choice between a paycheck and its life, chooses his life and runs away, leaves the sheep. But a shepherd stands in the gap, stands in between the enemies. And here we have, uh, we have Saul who can't even find a couple of donkeys. Notice how this obtuseness continues, okay? So Saul's father, Kish, sends him out. He says, verse three, take one of the young men with you Arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. They passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. He says, It's not worth it. I'm sure by now my dad is worrying where we are, so let's just get back. Verse 6, 
But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who's held in honor. All that he says come true. Now this is talking about Samuel. This is the second place where we see that Saul is relatively obtuse, this time in spiritual matters. By far, Samuel is the most famous person alive in Israel, and Saul has no idea who he is. Samuel is the only one who hears directly the word of the Lord, for it said in chapter 4 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and Saul's never heard of him. He doesn't know that this is the place where Samuel lives, nor does he think maybe this is something that a prophet can help us handle. He exhausts his own ability and he walks away. But his servant speaks up and goes, hey, while we're here, there's a man of God who visits. Let's go see him. Uh, Verse uh, 6, so he says, so let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Now, the word there for present is a hapax legomen meaning that it's the only place where we find this Hebrew word in the entire Hebrew Bible. Uh, There's quite a few of these across the Bible. In the New Testament, we have lots of hapax legomen as well. Those are difficult, obviously, because there is no hapax legomen dictionary. We have to guess based on the context what this word means. What's significant for us today is that whatever it is, it's clearly a donation to the prophet. Now, if you read the Old Testament thoroughly you will discover generally prophets don't work for money, right? Uh, Think of the days of Elisha and Elisha where a king comes to Elijah and he says, I'm willing to pay you, and he refuses, right? And then his servant runs after him and says, actually, I spoke to my master again. He would take a couple of things of clothing, and he experiences judgment. I think he's eaten by a lion, if I remember right, uh, because of that. Okay, God's prophets are not for hire. That's not how it works, Saul, that's the only way he can think of, okay? So it may even be here that this is another strike against Saul's spiritual obtuseness. He thinks that, uh, that like the nations, you pay for spiritual realities, okay? If we had to get a comparison, we could go to Simon in the New Testament. Simon is a magician who is so struck by the preaching of the apostles, he too joins a church and becomes a Christian. But then he sees as the apostles are praying for people to receive Jesus and they're speaking in tongues. He's watching as there's signs and wonders and miracles being done. And so he sits down with the apostles and he says, boy, that's a pretty great trick you got. I'd love to pay you for it. And he's rebuked, remember? He says, are you so greedy are you so money-minded that you don't understand how ensnared you are in your own sins that you think the gift of the holy spirit can be bought with money right there's this pattern in the bible uh, but saul is obtuse let me remind you that later in saul's ministry when samuel is no longer an option where does he go when he needs help he goes to a witch at endor a woman who speaks to the dead a necromancer he'll get help wherever he can find it okay even though Deuteronomy, which he's written by hand, constantly condemns that entire practice. Okay, and so here he says, we don't have anything. And the servant answers uh, Saul again, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And so he says, that's all right, I've got money, I can spot you. Now, that money's never gonna appear again. We don't know if Samuel takes it, but like I said, it may be here that Saul just doesn't get it. 
Now, notice it adds one little historical note for us here in verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Now, that's not really helpful to us because we're more familiar with the term prophet. In fact, it's the one that they've been using of Samuel so far. But there is a clarification for the audience he's writing to to explain the language here. And he goes, this language has been updated. What we used to call a seer, we now call the prophet. Verse 10, Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And they answered, he is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry, he's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. You may remember that Samuel's ministry was on rotation between these cities. And so here he's coming to town just to visit, to oversee a festival. Okay. Now recognize here the mark of God's sovereign hand here. What had happened if Saul had showed up yesterday? No seer. He comes in the same day Samuel does, okay? It's divine timing. So verse 13, as soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up on the high place to eat, for the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now there's a little bit of foreshadowing there. We're going to discover that this same principle of waiting for Samuel for the sacrifice is going to become a tense moment for Saul in his ministry as king. He's going to be on a mountain with the enemies approaching quickly, waiting for the sacrifice to be offered before they can battle, and Samuel doesn't show up. And the armies get closer, and Samuel doesn't show up. And so Saul grabs the implements himself and offers the sacrifice, and immediately as he lights the flame, here comes Samuel. And that's the first place where Saul encounters judgment. But that's part of the story even here. I mean, he's, the first thing he learns about Samuel is that Samuel's the guy who does the sacrifices. It's just lesson number one, uh, but it's a lesson he will forget. So he says, now go up and you will meet him immediately, verse 14. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Fortuitous, isn't it? Wherever he was, he's just, he's the person they first bump into when they get to the gate. Verse 15, we get more clarification. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. Okay, so notice here some of the tensions of the way that God works. Saul is a judgment, but God's also going to use him significantly against the Philistines. When it says here that he has heard the cry of his people, that's not the cry, give us a king like the other nations. That's a cry from the pain being caused by the Philistines. God is going to use Saul, okay? Just like he used Samson, just like he used many of the judges, God often, uh, often employs uh, things in a, in a mixed or in a convoluted sense. He has a plan here, and he's told Samuel before, yesterday even, before he gets to Zuf, before Saul gets to Zuf, he says, tomorrow you're going to meet a man to anoint as king. I've got plans for him. Once again, this is similar to the way that God leads. So consider, for example, the story of Cornelius and Peter in Acts chapter 9 and 10. Okay. Here, a man named Cornelius uh, is a God-fearer. 
He tithes. He takes care of the poor. He prays daily. And one of the days he's praying and an angel appears and he says, Cornelius, something has happened. You need to send for a man named Peter in the city of Joppa to tell you some good news. And so he sends his servants to Joppa to find this guy, Peter, who he knows will be at the, at the leather worker's house. Okay? Meanwhile, on the same day, Peter is up on the roof waiting for lunch. He's praying. He goes into a trance, and he has this vision, right? He has this vision of this sheet descending, and all of these animals, clean and unclean alike, and he hears a voice saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, Not so, Lord, because I've never touched anything that's unclean. And he says, Don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And it happens a couple of times, and then he's told there's a knock at the door, and God speaks to him one last time, and he says, those men are from a man named Cornelius. You're going to tell him about the gospel. And so in both of these stories, God is working on both ends, speaking to both sides, navigating both things in preparation. Similarly, just to add one more story, when Paul is converted, when he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, Uh, he's struck blind, he's taken into Damascus, and he's put in a house, and he's just sitting there. And God speaks to one of his children, to to a Christian whose name I forget, um, and he basically says, hey, I've got a guy, I have plans for him, I want you to go to talk to him, his name is Saul. He goes, Saul? The one who's here to lock us up and throw us away? This doesn't sound like a good idea, but he goes. Okay, here's the thing is, we see God actively working. In fact, especially with the prophets. God says later in the prophetic books, I never do anything without telling the prophets first. Okay. And so we see this involvement in what God is doing. So when Saul and his servant walk up, Samuel knows who he is. He knows what he's there for. And so notice how he speaks to him. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, some of your translations may say there, who shall protect my people. This word's used 46 times in the Old Testament. This is the only place in your translation where it's translated protect. It means to hold back. It means to restrain. It means to put pressure on. It means a lot of things it probably doesn't mean protect. Okay? God speaks frankly here to Samuel because Samuel's already in the loop. Saul is not necessarily going to be a good thing for Israel. He's going to be a weight. He's going to hold them back. He's going to restrain them. But he's identified here. And so, verse 18, Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you'll eat with me, and in the morning I'll let you go, and I'll tell you all that's on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that's desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and your father's house? And so notice what he says here. He says, one, head up the hill with me to a feast, because I've already set you a place at the table. Two, he says, I know you're here about the donkeys. They were already found. They're already back in your father's care. And then three, he says, and are you not the desire of Israel? Aren't you the one that Israel is looking for? We can assume here that Saul is aware that the elders of Israel, which his dad might be one, have come to Samuel requesting a king. And so he knows what this means. But that language is fascinating because desire of Israel 
uh, reminds us of one of the titles that's given to the coming Messiah, the desire of nations. We use that sometimes in hymns. It's a very strong term, but interestingly enough, that word for desire is ambiguous. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative and translated even coveting, okay? And so there's this ambiguity here, but what he says is, aren't you the one that Israel is looking for? Notice how um, Saul responds, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Now remember what he's talking about here. At the very end of the book of Judges, because of a horrible thing that happens in a Benjamite city, almost all of Benjamin is wiped out to the degree that there's only a handful, I think 400 men left and no women. And so they have to come up with a way to marry off these men so Benjamin can continue it all. Okay, they're the least likely candidate for kings. There's not very many of them, and the last historical happening with Benjamin was not a good thing. It was an act of judgment. And so he says, from Benjamin? Don't you know that I'm a Benjamite? And then he continues here. He says, not my clan, the humblest of all clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Now, we've seen some things like this before. This is how Gideon responded, right? Welcome, mighty men of valor. And he goes, why? Why do you call me that when... I'm the least of all the tribes and the least of all the clans, and my family is the least of all the families. There is definitely a Hebrew deferential in this. That's just a natural way to respond to a compliment, to defer it, okay? Um, but it is questionable here uh, to Saul. So verse 22, Samuel took Saul and his young man, brought them into the hall, and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited and who were about 30 persons. Now, we don't know who these 30 persons are. It's not the whole village, obviously. Uh, so maybe this is some of Samuel's family, and the feast involves a fellowship offering where you invite your table as you offer a sacrifice. Maybe they're the leaders of the surrounding area, and they're the first to be introduced to this nominate king. We're not told who they are, but notice who he sets at the head of the table. This has become a party for Saul. On top of that, uh, he continues here, uh, verse 23, Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook, cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So he gives him the best portion, okay, for Saul. Now, this is probably an overwhelming experience for Saul. Remember what he's after, missing donkeys. But now he's starting to go, okay, there's something bigger going on. I wandered into this place desperate, a job failed, and here I encounter God has a plan. And it comes with a dinner invitation, and it comes with a special portion. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called up to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. And so he says, send your servant ahead. I have a private communication to you from God. You came here to ask about the donkeys. I've already told you about that. But God does want to say something to you. Send your servant on ahead. Now, there's one thing that I missed here that I just wanted to point out. Go all the way back to verse 15. 
he says, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people of Israel. This anointing is, about, is what we're about to see happen, okay? We see an anointing with David. In fact, the word Messiah is just a Hebrew word that means anointed one, okay? And so it's a significant uh, recognition of a change of status, of appointment, okay? But what I want you to notice in verse 15 is that he's to be appointed as a prince, Okay, now that, this is not the normal word for prince, but it's also not the word that was used for king when Israel demands a king. There's a couple of possibilities here. Either it's another commentary on the fact that God is still going to be the king of Israel whether his people understand that or not, or most likely it's, it's best uh, understood as heir apparent. Okay? Now generally when we use that language speaking of royalty, we're talking about the king's child, right? the heir apparent. But at the beginning of a monarchy, this would be for the fact that effectively he's going to be nominated as a king, but he's not, as we'll see, going to be finally appointed as a king until he has this real military victory. Okay? So it may be that the word here is, uh, um, you know, inaugurated king, but not consummated king. I just forgot to point out, so I wanted to point out. So he sends the servant forward, chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. Okay. Now, once again, this has got to be tremendously surprising to Saul. Samuel's already told him the day before that, that aren't you the one Israel's looking for? He sends this servant ahead, and then out of nowhere, he pulls out this flask of oil, and he just dumps it on Saul's head. Remember, this is before dawn, okay? I just, cinematically, I think this is probably a surprise. And then he begins to prophesy over him. And he says, you've been appointed as king. You have a job to do. You have a calling. God's going to use you greatly to deliver you from the surrounding enemies. And then he starts to give him evidence that the things he's saying are going to come true. And so he says here, This shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from today, you will, one, meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Okay, so the first thing that's going to happen is when he gets near Rachel's tomb, it's a pretty specific location, he's going to encounter two men, and they're going to go, hey, Saul, it's good to see you. Your donkeys have been found. Your dad's been asking on you. Okay, that's part one. Part two, verse three, then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor, another specific location. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Look at the specificity there. Three men, and I'll tell you what they're carrying, okay? This is so different than when you open up the paper and look at your astrology for the week, right? This isn't generalities at all. It's incredibly specific. Three men, here's what each one of them will have, verse four, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you'll accept from their hand. Now, where is this food going? Is this a grocery trip? No, they're headed up the hill to worship, and they're going to give the bread that's destined for worship to Saul instead. That's not normal, In fact, the significance of it, most commentators believe, is that now that Saul is an anointed one like a priest, 
he can eat of the bread. Interestingly enough, when David is on the run from Saul after he's been anointed and he comes to the high priest and he says, my men have nothing to eat, there the anointed will eat the bread of worship as well. Okay, so will his men. But nonetheless, the point here is, this is out of the ordinary. He says, you will know that I'm telling the truth about these far things because I'm going to walk you through the near things of tomorrow. Okay? But notice also there's a progression. So it's two men, then three men, and then look at number three. Okay? Verse 5, after that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group, two, three, a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and the lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Okay. So the third thing is he's going to encounter this group that's one part minstrels, they're, they're singing praises to the Lord, and another part, prophets, and so they're prophesying uh, before the Lord. And it says here that Samuel, the spirit is going, or Saul, the spirit will come upon him, and he will also begin to prophesy as well. Okay? Now, what's really interesting is these three encounters parallel the things that just happened in, Zoph, uh, in Zophah with Saul. Okay? So what's the first thing that comes it's this conversation about donkeys, right? He meets Saul and he says, hey, don't worry about your donkeys before he's even got his name, right? The second thing that happens is he finds himself being fed the priest portion at the table. And we see that with the, with the three men who, who share in the festival as they're going up to a high place. And then finally, here in the dark, Saul anoints him. And what happens when he's among the prophets? The spirit comes upon him, okay? And so this isn't just a, let me tell you what will happen tomorrow. It's an intentional confirmation of what he's experiencing right now. It's not, here's how you know what will happen to you. It's also, here's the significance of the things you just experienced. Okay? We will see in both Saul and David a significant correlation between their rule as kings and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's why in David's psalm of penitence, in Psalm 51, what is one of the requests he makes? It's a weird one if you're a Christian. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. As we'll see with Saul, David knows there's a significant reason to pray a prayer like that as a king of Israel. Okay? Um, but nonetheless, so he, he walks him through the next door. He says, this is what's going to happen. And then he gives him one last interaction. Uh, instruction, verse 8, then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days, excuse me, seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So what's the last thing he tells him? Tells him? He says, then stop, wait, and I'll tell you what to do next. Now, once again, that's important, not just because uh, Saul has, or Samuel has a day on a calendar, not just because he wants to gather all of Israel for this occasion, but he wants to establish a particular component of the monarchy, which is that God tells the king what to do and the king does it. Okay. And so one of the things that's really striking in the early years of David's ministry as king is that you see him consulting the Lord. Shall I go up against the armies of Israel or against the armies of the Philistines or whatever? And God says, you shall. You'll see this over and over again, but that's the way it's designed. That's the way it's supposed to work. And so it's not really a replacement of Samuel 
or a replacement of the prophets with a newfound ministry. They are to work with the prophets to lead Israel as they hear from the prophets God's will and carry it out as God's anointed. Okay? You could argue that the whole Bible is the story of God looking for someone to rule for him. Go all the way back to Genesis, the creation of man and woman. What does he do? He says, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all that I've made. But Adam and Eve collectively choose to rule for themselves, to raise themselves up to God's level. Okay? We see this pattern flow throughout history. God is looking for someone to rule for him, and it's true. With David, he finds a man after God's own heart. And that's despite the fact that David, uh, as he gets a little bit older, has an adulterous affair with another man's wife and then murders the man and covers it up because he gets the woman pregnant. But nonetheless, there's a deterioration in his role as king. His second half is not as good as his first. And then the kings of Israel are all downward, and there's a couple of good kings along the way, but none perfect, and it's not until we get to Jesus, right? In the volume of the book, it is written uh, written of me to do your will, O God. It's Jesus who's appointed King of kings and Lord of lords and who will rule, Psalm 2 says, over the world as was destined to be. Not just as God's son, but as God's son become flesh, as a man on the throne of history, just as it was always supposed to be. Okay? And so anytime we look at the kings of Israel, we have to recognize that they don't live up to the destiny because the destined one is still to come. They're anointed for the role, but they're really just a reflection of the anointed one that is promised. Okay? Like it says of Judah, David's tribe, they shall rule over Israel until he who comes whose right it is to rule. Okay? And so he lays this all on the table and then he says, wait and I'll come to you. Verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Okay. So it doesn't give us all the notes of the things that would happen. It just rushes forward to the ending. He finally gets to this place. The Spirit comes upon him. He begins to prophesy. Uh, and then notice verse 11, when all who knew him, he's back in his hometown at this point, when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What's come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now once again, this doesn't speak very highly of Saul. He's the person least likely to see in a worship service. Okay? They go, wait, Saul, what's he doing? And the spirits come upon him, so he's loudly and voluminously probably praising God or prophesying in some way, speaking God's word out. Um, and then they ask, is Saul among the prophets? And somebody speaks up and says, and who is their father? And we have honestly no idea what the punchline is here. Okay? Here's some suggestions. And who is their father means the prophets are the least in Israel. They have no respect. Saul's from a good family, and they go, what is he doing hanging out with them? Right? Do they have any lineage to speak of? Are they impressive? They're not supposed to be hanging out together, right? They're of different classes. Uh, another possibility here is, um, is that they expect prophesying, the role of a prophet, to be one that has a heritage to it. 
Now, that's not something we actually see in the Bible. We don't see prophets passing on the role of prophet to their sons. But maybe their idea is, wait, Kish wasn't a prophet. What's Saul doing? Okay. We really don't know. But it's clearly at least partially a dig. In some sense, even if just lightly so, it's derogatory. When it says it's a proverb here, that usually means not a good thing in the scriptures. Outside of the book of Proverbs, anytime it says, and this shall be a proverb, it's usually uh, when people say, oh man, your life is so bad, it's like the destruction of Israel, right? It's not a good thing. But either way, this is their first impression of the new and improved Saul. It's out of place. It's questionable. When he had finished prophesying, verse 13 says, he came to the high place, and Saul's uncle said to him, and his servant, where'd you go? And he said, to sink donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please, tell me what Samuel said to you. And he said to his uncle, he told us plainly about the donkeys that had been found, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now, I wish the narrator gave us more commentary there. We don't really know what that says about Saul. It's one of two occasions tonight where Saul's going to act in an odd way and we just have to decide what to do with it. What I would encourage you to do is table it. Okay? All it shows us right now is there's something to watch for. He doesn't come home and he, goes, he doesn't go, man, you'd never believe it. God spoke to me and apparently I have a destiny. He has a plan. He just says, oh, he told us where the donkeys were and he just lets it be. Let's continue, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distress, and you've said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So even here, notice the tone is still negative. God has done so much for you, Israel, and you've still demanded something else, someone else. He says, so gather up. And what he's about to do is a casting of lots so that God can choose a king. So verse 20, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. He brought the tribes of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clans of the Matrites were taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. But when they sought them, he could not be found. Okay, so at, at this point, they've gotten down just to Saul's family, the household of Kish, and if you will, they pull his name out of the hat, and they look around, and he's not there. It's like when you're in a, um, you know, a, a, a raffle, and it's always so annoying because they're calling a number for something you really want, and nobody's raising their hand. But why is this weird? Who's the one person in the audience who knows the end of the raffle? Saul. And he conveniently excuses himself. In fact, notice what it says. Uh, so uh, be, uh, they inquired again of the Lord and said, is the man still to come? Has he not arrived? Right. Uh, and what does God say? The Lord said, behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. And they go, hey, you see that pile of junk over there? He's back there. And that's where they find him. Verse 23, they ran and took him from there. Okay. Now, once again, we're not told what we should think of that. There's some different ways we could read it. We could read it as being um, fear, but not necessarily insecurity. Right? He may just feel unworthy or embarrassed or afraid of what's coming next. The Bible is full of people who are unworthy, embarrassed, and afraid, and that's, that's a place God can work from. But we're going to see in Saul 
there is a tremendous amount, not just of fear, but of insecurity. In fact, if we had to give a biblical label to the greatest sin of Saul, it's the fear of man. Like many people who are tall, dark, and handsome from a good family, and it comes with expectations, he cares what people think of him, and it's going to be his downfall. Okay? So when it comes to that sacrifice and the uh, Philistines are closing in, it may just be that the thing that scares him is not the impending armies, but the grumbling of his soldiers. What are we going to do? I mean, can't Saul just do something? He's supposed to be our leader. He's supposed to be our deliverer. And then the second time, the second time is when he's supposed to take out King Agag and de- defeat all of, the, uh, all of the enemies and all of their animals. And so Samuel's coming up the hill after the victory, and Saul runs out to him. He says, behold, I've done everything that the Lord asked me of. And Samuel goes, well, if that's the case, then why can I hear sheep? They're supposed to be dead, and they're clearly still living. This is before Samuel even knows that King Agag himself is still alive. And Saul comes up with a thing, and this is what he says. He says, well, the people had the idea that it'd be good to offer it as sacrifices to the Lord instead of killing it here. Even if that's true, who's calling the shots here, God or the people? And so Saul says, this is the end. Not only will none of your sons reign over Israel, but this is the end of your reign. God will appoint another in your place. And how does Saul understand or uh, respond? He basically says, yes, 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 that's fine. Please just come and honor me before the people. There's this inherent flaw. They requested a king after man's own heart, and that's what Saul is. He seeks to please and to serve his subjects in a way that is not beneficial to them. Is only a way to protect and promote Saul. And so here he's hiding among the stuff. But despite the fact that he's hiding from his destiny, they're impressed by him. Why? Verse 23, they went and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. They're on board. They go, this is exactly what we've wanted. Another thing that's really interesting, outside of Zacchaeus in the New Testament, who we know is tremendously short, There is not a character numbered among the people of God whose height is given, but the enemies of Israel constantly pointed out how tall they are. Okay? May not mean anything, but it would align with what Saul is. He is both the expected deliverer of the people and in some ways the restraint of the people, the enemy of the people. So verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them in a book and laid it before the Lord, and Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his own home. And so notice here there's a spiritual component, and then there's also a legal component. They actually write up a contractual obligation, an agreement between the people and the king. And not only is it written down and probably signed in some way right there, but it's also stowed away for keeping, just like our government documents are, like the Constitution. Okay. Verse 26, Saul also went home at, uh, to his home at Gibeah. With him went the men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Okay. In other words, certain people just feel called to support Saul. They become his frontline men, the generals of his army, his closest constituency. And just like Saul here has a change of heart, so do they. Okay. God doesn't just give him a calling. He gives him a people to fulfill that calling with. 
but there's also a contrasting crowd. Look next in verse 27, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. One of the contractual obligations here uh, is a gift. And certain ones go, we're not doing that. We're not impressed. We would have gone another way. Now, that's going to become significant in just a minute. But notice what it says here about uh, Samuel and Saul specifically. He held his peace. He hears these complaints. He doesn't do anything about it. Probably we should read that for the right move that it is. Okay? He doesn't get a lot of wins in the early history of Israel, but that's one we should get. He doesn't get blustered, offended. He doesn't call out vengeance or put them to death. He just... Let's it brush off. It reminds me what it, what it says in Ecclesiastes. I'll paraphrase for you. It says, don't put yourself in a place where you can overhear your servants because they will talk bad about you and it will make you mad, but you also talk bad about those over you. Okay? The recognition is things are said. Brush it off. Get the dirt off your shoulder. Right. Let's finish up in chapter 11. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash. So notice here he's an Ammonite. Now if we go back to the book of Judges, who were the major enemies at the end of the book? The Philistines and the Ammonites. Okay? And that's still the case today. And so here, Jabesh-Gilead, which is a border town, they're under the thumb of this particular ruler of the Ammonites named Nahash. And so they're experiencing this, they're threatened by him, and so they come to make a treaty. Verse 2. Uh, all the men of Jabesh said to Naash, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. In other words, stop attacking us and we'll pay you tribute. Okay? What they want is no more fighting and they're willing to sell themselves into slavery. Actually, it's a lot like the warning that Saul, Saul, uh, Saul's ministry had from Samuel, right? If you get a king, he's going to take stuff from you. And here we see Jabesh Gilead, a single town, coming to a foreign king and saying protect us, like the mob protects you, but protect us and we'll give you a portion of our stuff, okay? So notice that Naash drives a hard bargain. Naash the Ammonite said to them, on one condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all of your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. Now there is a military security aspect here. If he gouges out the right eye of all of the men, that greatly interferes their ability to fight back, right? Because they lose their depth perception. But he also says here, he's really just doing this to mock Israel. He says, what if there's an entire city of one-eyed people because of me, right? And so he drives a hard bargain. This is what he says. In other words, he knows they have nothing to offer him. So he's just going to take advantage of the situation. So, verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we might send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. If no one's to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. That's desperate, is it not? They say, just give us a week to consider and see if there's anyone who will fight for us. If not, our eyes are yours. Okay. So, side note, seven days at a good pace, barely enough time to reach the margins of the rest of Israel. Okay. They, they don't seem to have a lot of hope here. And as we'll see in the text anyways, they only go to, Jab- or they only go to, to the Benjamites. They only go to the town specifically of Saul. Okay? Now, it may be because that's their intention. We'll talk about that in a second. 
Uh, or it may be that God is just sovereignly leading it this way. And it also could be that they hit all the cities on the way. They all say no and they get there. The text isn't very clear. Josephus tells us that it's that last option. Okay? That they went from city to city until they got to the city of Saul. Uh, but nonetheless, so they say, give us seven days. Verse 4, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, why does this make sense? Why does it make sense that they would come to Benjamin? If you remember, Jabesh Gilead is the one village, the one town that doesn't come to the all-council meeting about the horrors happening in Benjamin in the book of Judges. They're the ones that because they don't show up, they solve the problem of providing wives to the Benjamites because Israel raids their town because they didn't come when summoned uh, and then takes their women as plunder and gives them freely to the Benjamites. I know it's a bad story. It's not supposed to be a good one. It's a total mess. Okay? But what does that mean? It means that they have marital relational ties between Jabesh Gilead and this small remnant of Benjamin. It makes sense that they would find help here. But that's not the only story echo we find here. Notice what happens. So they come to Gibeah uh, of Saul. They reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and when he heard these words, his anger was greatly kindled. And so here we see, like in the book of Judges, as a response to this, he's spiritually empowered. The Spirit comes upon him to deliver Israel, as we'll see in just a second. Now, one other thing we should point out is most of the time in the Bible when we see this happening, it's the Spirit of the Lord. The only place where we find the Spirit of Elohim coming upon someone is Balaam, the pagan seer. Okay? And so even here, there's this little resistance to what we would expect but then again, this is what it's always supposed to be with the judges. In fact, uh, notice how parallel this story sounds to the story that leads to the destruction of Jabesh Gilead. Do you remember it? Right? A Levite is passing through a Benjamin town. He finds a place to stay. The men of the town say, come and send us out that Levite so that we can rape him. And he gives his concubine and the, the man's daughter in place, and the concubine is raped to death. And he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her to all of Israel and says, nothing like this has ever happened. We've clearly crossed the threshold. We need to do something about this. Okay? Notice how similar that is to what happens here. Okay? So he's full of anger. Uh, they told him the news. Uh, Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, verse 6. He heard these words. His anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, that's two, and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. I would argue that this is a much more viable way of getting the army's attention than cutting up the corpse of your concubine. Okay? But the parallel is there. Last time it was Jabesh Gilead who didn't heed this call and judgment came upon them. Now the call goes out on behalf of Jabesh Gilead and the tone is the same. Okay? But notice how the people respond. It says here, Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, the fear of the Lord, and they came out as one man, all of them, every village. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. 
okay? Two things about that number, okay? First off, the only larger army we find in Israel in the Old Testament is when they gather to wipe out Benjamin, okay? This is a significant response. This is also a relatively large force. It's a surprising show of force. And then we also have to recognize that there's two numbers here. Did you notice? 300,000 for Israel and then... um, Sorry, I lost my way here. Three hundred thousand and the men of Judah were thirty thousand. The only thing I want you to notice there is it shows that there's already starting to be a division in the classification of Israel. It's the armies of Judah and the armies of Israel. Eventually, Israel is going to become a split government, and so we're going to have the northern kingdom Israel and the southern tribes around Judah. Already here, there's at least some sort of a quantifiable sentiment in that way. It's not a good thing. Verse 9, they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now in the Hebrew there, it's a little bit more ambiguous. They come to Nahash uh, and they basically say, tomorrow we'll come out to you, do whatever you want. It sounds like they're coming out to surrender, but that's not really the case. But it is ambiguous. They don't say tomorrow we're surrendering. They say tomorrow we'll come out to you. Okay. But, verse 11, the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. The morning watch is before the sun comes up, okay? So this is a sneak attack in the middle of the night. They just come upon the Ammonites uh, and they fight them all the way to the heat of the day that's late afternoon. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together, which is clearly a, a solid victory, right? There is no army of the Ammonites left, just individual Ammonites scattered across the land. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we shall put them to death. You remember these men, the worthless men who said, who's Saul? Wrong choice, Israel, and walked away. Now Israel's so much on the side, and they're so full of, uh, you know, after war adrenaline, they're like, where are those who stood against Saul? Did you see what he just did? They all should die. Okay. But 13, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Once again, it's a mixed story. Right answer, God has given the victory, and right policy. No, 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 today is not a day to kill Israel, this is a day of victory. We've been delivered. No sense of personal revenge here. He just lets it go. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. What is he made here? Not just prince, that earlier word, but king. Here's the significant thing, okay? And so basically here, God proves Saul's calling through the deliverance of Israel. Sound familiar? That's how it goes with Moses, right? So God says, Moses, you're going to do these things, not just as a judgment on the house of Pharaoh, but also so all of Israel knows that I am God and that you speak for me. This is especially clear in Exodus 14 when they get to the Red Sea. And he says, you're going to hold out your staff. They're going to see this deliverance so that they know 
that you are my representative. Okay? And so at this point, the whole nation, everybody is on board with King Saul. So they make Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And just one more reminder before we close. Of the five Levitical sacrifices, the peace offering is also known as the fellowship offering. It's basically a feast for your friends, for your family, in this case for all of Israel, that you invite God to. Okay? And so he's given a portion, but there's also portions available for everyone to eat together. This is a tremendous celebration of Israel because not only has God given them victory over the Ammonites, but now long live King Saul. Okay? So we see here uh, a, a mixed story. God is working through providing the king that Israel has asked for, but he's working on multiple levels. He's bringing both judgment and deliverance. He has a plan to bring a king and he's actually going to use their wrong-headedness to show their need for the plan to bring a king. And this is another plan or another way we see God works. Although he will often give us what we ask for, the reason he does so is so that we realize what we need. Right? Think all the way back with Adam in the garden. God knows it's not good that man should be alone. Adam does not. And so he parades before Adam all of the animals and asks, you to, asks him to name him. And it's through there that Adam discovers that there was no one found to be a helpmeet for him. Okay? Not only does he see that all of the animals may be helpful, but none of them are like him, but he also sees all of the animals in pairs. And he finds himself alone. Okay? God shows him the need, and then I love the next part, he meets the need without Adam's help. John Corson once said, what was the best Adam could do on his own, right? If he goes, well, none of these are a good fit, so I'll take the chimpanzee, right? And so there's, there's, there's a pattern here that even when our desires are wrong, God's desires for us are still good. And they come with discipline. And sometimes they even come with judgment. But even there, oh, I wish I could nail this quote. I'm going to paraphrase it. C.S. Lewis has this portion in The Problem of Pain where he talks about the fact that sometimes pain is God planting a flag in a rebel heart. And he goes on and he says, it is absolutely possible that this attempt could lead to a stronger hardening in the human heart. But it's also the only thing that can lead to surrender. That's how it is with Israel. They can choose this king and they can be satisfied. They can continue to demand. They can blame the whole reality of Saul on God. But it's also the only way that they can come to the end of themselves and see afresh their need for the real king, God. Okay? And it's the same in our lives. I would encourage you this evening, if you find yourself under the discipline of the Lord, try paying attention. Try opening your eyes. And instead of just focusing on the pain, go, what is it that I don't understand? Where is it that I have asked for and gotten what I asked for? And recognize the fact that from that place, from a place of humility, even if it requires tremendous confession and repentance on our part, that's exactly where God loves and longs to meet us. Let's pray. Father, we are especially gifted as modern Americans at seeking someone to do 
stuff for us, to save us, to give us success, to deliver us, to protect us. But God, you tell us that as Christians, you are all of that, and you alone are those things. Put not our trust in princes, Isaiah tells us. And so I pray, Lord, if there's a place where we are rightly recognizing our own needs and longing for deliverance, that we would direct those prayers to the one who saves. And that we would not continue to entrust ourselves to those who can't. We pray that you do this work in us, and we thank you for your word tonight. And we ask that you bless us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.